Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you could be here today. Uh, the Greek legend of Narcissus is, uh, it might be a familiar tale to some of us. The legend goes that Narcissus was this incredibly handsome young man, man and all of the young ladies wanted to be with Narcissus. And they would throw themselves at him, but he would always push them away. He would always scorn them. No, 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 you're not for me. And he broke the hearts of many a young lady all across Greece. Uh, and it wasn't just like humans that were infatuated with Narcissus. There were mythical creatures that found him so lovely as well. There was a, a wood nymph named Echo. Uh, she was cursed. The only thing she could ever say were the last words that she had heard spoken, hence the name. And one day she was pursuing Narcissus through the forest and kind of sneaking behind him. And every time he would get the feeling he was being followed, he would turn around and say, Who's there? And of course, all Echo could respond with was, Who's there? Who's there? It was infuriating. So when Echo finally revealed herself and tried to embrace Narcissus, he again pushed her away, disgusted, and said no. And it broke the poor wood nymph's heart, so much so that she ran into the forest until her body disappeared and all that was left was her voice, which can still be heard today in the valleys and the trees and all that nonsense. And that's where Echo has come from. Why this is important is because the legend goes that the Greek goddess of vengeance, uh, Nemesis, you can tell with a name like that, she's a real catch. The nemesis said, I need to get revenge on this Narcissus fellow for what he's done to poor Echo. And so she came up with a scheme. And one day Narcissus was walking through the, the forest and he caught a glimpse of his own reflection in the stream. And he became infatuated with this person, this gorgeous person staring back at him. He instantly fell in love. And he would lay by the stream and reach out and try to grab this beloved who had caught his eye, but of course it was water and so it scattered and the reflection was lost and he would become frustrated that he could never touch his beloved, but that just made his infatuation grow all the more. And he finally vowed that he would never leave the side of his beloved. And so he lay by that stream staring at his own reflection until his body wasted away and he died. And that's the story of Narcissus. It's a story that you can tell your kids at night when they go to bed, right? But it's a, it's a story that's kind of part of Greek mythology, and actually we incorporate into our own language. We have a word, narcissist, and this story is the inspiration for that word. Narcissist is a, it's, it's a clinical term. It talks about or refers to somebody who has a legitimate personality disorder that is just a self-absorbed individual. We use it more colloquially, though, just to say, like, this person is very into themselves. They're narcissistic. And that's the kind of narcissism that we're going to be talking about this morning in part four of this series called Mindfield. We started this series several weeks back, and in it we've been talking about this sort of battle of the mind that takes place within all of us. On the one hand, we have this traditional way of thinking that our culture encourages, that we're brought up in, that we inherit just by virtue of living when and where we do. On the other hand, we have this revealed way of thinking that God shows us in His Word that's a little different and at times at odds with the current thinking of our world. It's a conflict that's discussed a little bit in our theme passage for this verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, what He wants for your life, His good, perfect, pleasing, or good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, the, the key to finding, hey, what does God want me to do with my life? How does He want me to behave in this situation or this circumstance? How can I best honor Him with my days? All of that is found in learning to think in a new way. That at times, as we said, is 
in contrast and at odds with the current predominant way that our culture thinks today. That's the battle, the minefield we're trying to wade through. And today we're talking about the idea of narcissism. We've been talking about typical patterns that show up in our cultural mindset for the last several weeks. This is yet another one. It's something that we're going to refer to as narcissistic hedonism, which is a big fancy $5 word, I know. So what is narcissistic hedonism? We can take that term, break it down, Narcissism, as we already said, is sort of that self-absorbed mindset, like Narcissus was obsessed with his own reflection. There are people today that sometimes get a little too into themselves and what they want and what they think and their priorities and their lives and how this affects them at the expense of really everybody else. And we become obsessed with ourselves in that own way. Hedonism is a little different. Hedonism is a way of thinking that prioritizes or says that we should prioritize pleasure, and self-satisfaction. So you smash those two terms together, and what we wind up with is a mindset that says, my highest priorities ought to encourage the happiness and self-satisfaction of myself, or put in other words, one of the high goals for my life, one of my greatest aspirations, is to be happy. That's a current cultural mindset, and it influences our lives and the decisions that we make and the choices that we make in a lot of different ways. It's sort of this presupposition that we've all inherited. For instance, sometimes it might show up like this. Maybe we're feeling a little down. Maybe we had a bad day. Maybe something crummy happened, and we feel a little depressed, and we think, well, I shouldn't feel down. I shouldn't feel depressed. I shouldn't feel like this. I should be happy. So I need to do something to make myself happy. So I'll, I'll go to the mall and I'll do a little retail therapy and then I will feel better. Or I'll go to the grocery store and buy a gallon of ice cream and eat my feelings and then I will feel better for a little while. Or that person cut me off and I feel frustrated and angry and slighted. I shouldn't feel that way. I should feel happy and satisfied. So I'm going to ride that person's bumper and give them a certain gesture that makes me feel better, right? And in those circumstances and in countless others just like them, our way of thinking, our decision-making, the way that we process information, all of that is filtered through this underlining idea or assumption that I'm supposed to be happy above all else, or I'm supposed to feel satisfied. There are other ways that this shows up uh, in our lives. I know maybe you've been in this circumstance. You have a family member who is making what is objectively just a dumb decision. Like, it's a decision that will not end well. It's just a bad idea. Like, maybe, uh, maybe they just quit their job and walked out, and they have no backup plan. Or maybe they're, they're about to get with somebody and start a relationship that is just terrible for them. Like, they fight all the time. How is this going to work? Or maybe they're in a relationship, and they're dissatisfied, and so they cheat, or they have an affair. Something that is objectively immoral. And we hear all these things happen, and then despite how we may feel about it, what do we oftentimes say to this person? Well, as long as you're happy. As long as they're happy, that's what matters, right? If you're happy, I'm happy. Maybe we don't even believe that fully, but we say it because we understand there is this assumption in our culture that our happiness or our self-satisfaction ought to be one of our highest ideals, And our lives and our choices and our behaviors, they ought to service this ideal of my own gratification, my narcissistic hedonism in a nutshell. We experience this a lot. Now, I don't want to come off as some wet blanket, okay, and say like, nobody should ever be happy, because that's not true. There's nothing wrong with being happy, all right? There's nothing inherently virtuous about being miserable either. 
Sometimes we can fall on the other end of the spectrum, and we have sort of this, this martyr complex where we always have to be the one that bears the burden, or we always have to be the one that gets slighted, or we have to be the one that, that carries the unnecessary weight, and there's some satisfaction that comes from that. It's sort of masochistic in some ways. There's nothing virtuous about that either. Nothing wrong about being happy. But by that same token, there's nothing inherently good about happiness either. It merely feels good. For example, I, I could feel happy and satisfied because I did a good deed. That's a great thing. But I could just as easily feel happy or satisfied because I enacted vengeance upon somebody who wronged me in some way. Maybe not the most virtuous thing. I could feel contented and satisfied because a relationship in my life is going really well. Or I could feel happy and contented because I bought a vehicle that I can't afford and the dopamine hit hasn't quite given way to that dread of crushing debt that inevitably awaits. Maybe not a good thing. Happiness and satisfaction are not, are not bad in any way, but they're not inherently good either. They just feel good. And so if this is one of our highest ideals and one of our highest priorities that kind of guides how we think and what we do in life, there's like a 50-50 chance that we might end up doing some things that are unfaithful, immoral, and virtuous in order to satisfy this need, which is the danger of this pattern of thinking. And from a biblical mindset, there are several dangers that we need to be aware of. For instance, this idea that my self-satisfaction ought to be a top priority, inevitably, that's going to lead us to feed our fleshly nature. Now, that's kind of a bible way of saying it, but let's take a look at Romans chapter 8 this morning, verse 5, and we'll get an idea of what we mean by this, feeding our fleshly nature, and why that's problematic. Romans 8, 5, it says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So before we really even get any further or break this passage down, I just want to point out there's a relationship that's being established in this one verse that's kind of central to our, our whole series. It's this relationship between how we think and how we live. The mind, governed by the flesh or the Spirit, will live according to the flesh or the Spirit. It's this basic principle that where our minds are set, that's where our feet are going to tread. How we think will impact how we live. And this is a simple idea. We, we live this and see this at work all the time. I went to college with a guy who was always thinking about music. Not like listening, but like composing music and playing music and making music and writing music. That's just, that was his passion. That's where his mind was. None of his coursework had anything to do with music, oddly enough, uh, but that was his passion. And so because that was his passion, that's how he used his free time. That's what he did. He made music. And because he made music, he got a small gig doing a soundtrack for a small documentary. And that small documentary led to an internship with a composer, and that internship led to him making music for a much larger film, which led him to open a studio, and that is his career. His entire life impacted and directed by what he was thinking about, where his mind was. And we do that as well. What our minds are focused on, that's where our feet are going to follow. So if we're thinking about, hey, this is what's going to make me happy, this is what's going to make me satisfied, this is what's going to make me contented, guess where our lives are going to head? And how our choices are going to be impacted, and our thinking is going to be impacted, and our decision-making is going to be impacted. Now, we could desire spiritual things, but we could also desire things of the flesh, things that feel good and make me happy and satisfied. 
So what's the flesh? Before we go any further, what, what is that? Well, the flesh is the Bible's way of talking about that, that part of us, of all of us, that kind of craves carnal things. Like we're all biological creatures. We all need to eat. That's just a given, right? But the flesh intensifies that desire so that we, we, we crave decadence and we crave overconsumption and so on. Or we're, you know, we all have a, a sex drive, but the flesh intensifies that so that we lust, so that we idolize, so that we demand gratification. We need clothing, we need shelter, and we have to buy those things, right? There are things in life that we just have to buy, but the flesh is that part of us that intensifies that so that we covet, so that greed comes into play, so that maybe we idolize things. The flesh is that part of us that just intensifies our natural yearnings and longings to the point of of sin, really. You could say it is that narcissistic, hedonistic part of us that yearns to be happy and self-satisfied above all else, that that's the priority. And when we feed into this pattern of this world, when we think about these things in such ways, the flesh is inevitably what's going to be fed, which is problematic, as we see when we keep reading. Look at what verse 6 goes on to say. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Right out of the gate, pretty grim news. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind that prioritizes above all else my happiness, my self-satisfaction, my gratification is at odds with God. The one who creates life, who sustains life, the one who gives us new life, in fact, who sacrificed and gave of himself immensely that we could be the recipients of forgiveness and salvation, that God, he is at odds with this self-centered, narcissistic mindset. Death is an apt way to describe that if you're in opposition to the giver of life. So what is it about this idea, this way of thinking that's so at odds with God? We actually just read it there in verse 7. We do not and cannot submit to God's law. There's something about His Word that we find ourselves compelled to ignore, which is another danger of this pattern of thinking, this narcissistic, hedonistic mindset. It makes it far too easy to just overlook or ignore God's Word whenever it proves inconvenient. It's really not that different from how we handle other inconvenient yet very true information. Uh, My grandmother I spent a lot of time at her house growing up. Um, my parents were at work, and so I went there during the day in the summertime. And my grandma loved junk food, so grandma and I, like, whoosh, we got along great, right? And, and I remember specifically that grandma had a candy drawer at her house. Now, in hearing that, you probably imagine, like, maybe it was like a desk drawer or maybe even like a drawer in the kitchen cabinets, like a reasonably sized drawer for a reasonable amount of candy, but that's not how grandma rolled. Grandma had one of her crisper drawers in her fridge, like, you know, filled to the brim with snack-sized candy bars. So this thing that manufacturers intended to keep produce fresh and to hold lettuce and tomatoes and, like, healthy things was instead turned into this stockpile of Twix and Reese's peanut butter cups. I loved it. Grandma and I got along great. Probably not surprising to you, later in life, Grandma was diagnosed with diabetes, So all of that candy was a huge problem. It would have been really wise to get rid of it. 
right? Like if it's dangerous, potentially deadly, we don't want to have it in the house. But grandma kept it for the grandkids, you know, the grandkids that were off away at college or that lived two hours away in a different city. She kept that candy for the grand. No, grandma kept eating candy, right? And she ate candy until the day that she passed away. It wasn't good for her, but she was happy when she ate it. So even though there was this well-established body of information that this is bad for you, she just sort of overlooked it or excused herself from it because it was inconvenient. It challenged her happiness and satisfaction. And we can do that ourselves in a lot of different ways, right? We all know it's healthy to go to the gym, but we don't always want to do it. We always know it's not good to eat those fatty hamburgers and that greasy pizza, but it's so good. And so we do it anyway. And we can even do this with God's Word. When he speaks truth into our lives, or he directs us with his commands towards good and righteous and virtuous things, it can be very easy to ignore those or to just excuse ourselves from those because they challenge our happiness, our contentment. Here's just one example. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. We were going to read this as part of the message, but it just got long because I talk a lot, and so we're just going to use this one verse. It says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? We have a responsibility to take care of one another. Share with God's people who are in need. There's nothing confusing about that. There's no mysterious secret meaning there. It's very direct. And yet, how many times have we maybe wrestled within ourselves when we hear this command or there becomes an opportunity to do just this, to share with God's people in need? Because what if... What if taking care of one another inconveniences my schedule? Because I got a busy, excuse me, busy day, or you know, I really had plans to go out with the guys or with the girls, and if I do this, I don't know if I'm going to have time. It's really going to complicate things. Or what if sharing with God's people who are in need financially inconveniences me, and now I can't afford those luxuries that I'd planned to to partake in, or that I find so much enjoyment in? What if it's costly? What if it requires sacrifice? I don't know. You know, I'm sure that the church will handle this. They don't need me. There's plenty of other people that can do this, you know. So I'll pray for them, right? And there's nothing wrong with prayer, but that's not what our passage says. I'll pray for them, and then I'm sure everything will be okay. And it's tempting to overlook or excuse ourselves from what's pretty clear in God's Word we ought to do because it challenges our narcissistic hedonism. This idea that my happiness that my satisfaction and my contentment ought to be among the highest ideals and goals of my life. In fact, there's a lot about God's Word that challenges our flesh in this way. Because our flesh wants to consume. Our flesh wants to be contented. Our flesh wants to be narcissistically, hedonistically pleased. And yet God's Word challenges us to things like sacrifice and humility and service and selflessness. It doesn't prioritize happiness and hedonism. It prioritizes altruism, putting other people ahead of our own needs, our own wants, our own desires. It's challenging when this is the pattern of the way that we think to square our lives with God's Word because inevitably there's going to be a conflict. Something's got to give. It's like verse 7 said in our passage, we do not and cannot honor God's law if we're walking and thinking and living according to the flesh. We are hostile towards him. And that's maybe the greatest danger of this entire mindset, is it can very easily put us at odds with the very character of who God is. 
And we see that character of God displayed most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. So take a couple, or look at a couple of the things that Jesus has to say. Get a, a notion of who God is in these words. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 43. He says, not so with you. He's speaking to his disciples here. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples here about what does it actually mean to be great in his kingdom, his new world order, the, the world as he is creating it to be. It's not who has the most toys or the most satisfied life. It's not those who have the most accolades or are happiest. The greatest in God's kingdom are those who serve others, who put others first. That doesn't sound like I'm going to be happy if I do that. That doesn't sound like I'm going to be contented or satisfied. Well, maybe our flesh won't be. But there are things more important and more virtuous and more necessary than just the pursuit of personal satisfaction and happiness at times. And in the kingdom of God, service of one another is one of those things. This is God's character. Even Jesus himself didn't come to be doted upon, but to serve others. This narcissistic, hedonistic mindset, it is at odds with the character of who God is. We go to more words of Jesus. This is the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 42. This is Jesus in the Garden of the Gethsemane. It's the last 24 hours of his life. He's contemplating with the next few hours will hold for him. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. I don't think I'm going to shatter anybody's faith when I say this, but Jesus wasn't exactly thrilled about embracing the cross. It's not something that he yearns to do or desired to do. We can see that just looking at the narrative. He goes to this Garden of Gethsemane to pray for strength, not once, not twice, but on three different times. He goes, he prays, he comes back, still feels uneasy, goes, prays, comes back, still feels uneasy, goes, prays, and then is arrested. Jesus wrestled with some things, and nobody could really blame him. There's nothing about that night that would satisfy or content any of us. There was the betrayal and the rejection of his countrymen and of his closest friends. That's not satisfying, God. I don't want that. There's the pain and the agony of the cross and everything leading up to it. That doesn't make us happy. I, I, God, I really don't want that. There was taking upon himself the weight of humanity's sin feeling separation from God from the very first time. That's not contenting for our lives. Nobody pursues that, not willingly anyway. There's nothing about that evening that would satisfy Jesus' self-satisfying, yearning, fleshly desires. And yet, he says, not my will, but yours be done, God. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to subject my desires, my yearnings to your will and what you desire and what you yearn for. There's a selflessness in Christ that is inherent in the very character of God, and it stands in contrast with this hedonistic, narcissistic mindset that we sometimes get sucked into because of the pattern of this world. There's one more passage I want to share with you. This is John Chapter 13, words of Jesus. Again, this is the night he's betrayed, but we're going to back up a little bit. This is at the Last Supper. He just washes his disciples' feet. And he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There's yet another example of Jesus' selflessness and his willingness to serve, to put others above himself. But what I really want to draw attention to is that last verse. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Blessing is a rich concept uh, in the New Testament, particularly. It can mean a couple of different things or have a couple of different connotations, but a lot of times it simply means you will experience favorable conditions, or some translations put it, you will be happy. In other words, Jesus is instructing his disciples here, your happiness is not achieved, your blessing is not experienced through trying to satisfy yourself through some sort of fleshly desires. But in serving one another the way that I have instructed you to do, that's how you experience blessing and satisfaction that God intends for your life. And that's a theme that actually runs throughout Scripture. We could survey the entirety of the Bible, and we could look at happiness and the way that the words translating that way are used. And what we'll find is that God never, as far as I can tell, God never instructs us to do something for the purpose of our happiness. Happiness is not His goal for us, in other words. That doesn't mean God wants us to be unhappy. There's a very big difference between those concepts. It's just that happiness is not the priority for God. It is, however, oftentimes experienced as a byproduct of walking with Him faithfully in obedience. It's kind of the difference between doing a good deed and receiving a reward for it versus doing a good deed so that you receive a reward for it. A little example to differentiate. Uh, when I was a youth minister in Missouri, my youth group kids, they had this idea one day after church. They wanted to get a bunch of like sandwich ingredients together, make some sandwiches, and go take it to the homeless guys that played basketball in the park. And so after church, that's what they did. And, and that was their idea. They came up with it on their own. I wasn't even there that Sunday. I was out of town for some reason. So they grabbed Mike, one of our youth sponsors, and they made sandwiches, and they went out, and they handed out sandwiches, and they, they talked with these guys. And, and Mike, the, the sponsor, he was so proud of them that afterwards he took them out to, and treated them all to lunch. It was like pizza or Quiznos. I don't remember which it was, but they loved both. And that was their reward. They received a reward because they good, did a good deed. That wasn't their goal. That wasn't the intention. That's just a blessing that came to them because they did a righteous thing. It would have been a very different story if they said, hey, guys, listen, if we go feed some guys some sandwiches, I'm pretty sure Mike's going to buy us some Quiznos. Everybody in? Okay. That's a very different scenario. And when we look at blessing and happiness in Scripture, what we find is God is not saying, hey, go do these things so that you will experience happiness and satisfaction in your life, but rather, go do these things because I'm your God, and this is what I call you to. Go do these things because this is who I created you to be. This is righteous and virtuous and good. And hey, by the way, when you walk a good, righteous, virtuous life in alignment with me and my will, you're going to experience satisfaction and contentment and happiness that we call blessing. In other words, in our lives, we don't need to prioritize self-satisfaction in a narcissistic, hedonistic way. We don't prioritize happiness to achieve it. Rather, we achieve happiness by prioritizing God's will in our lives and walking faithfully to Him as He calls us to. And that's the primary difference here between this pattern of this world kind of thinking and this renewed mind kind of thinking. It's not a priority on me. 
And my highest ideals are not, how will I be happiest? How will I be most satisfied? How will I be most content? But rather, what has God called me to? Because in that, we imitate the character of Christ. Not my will, but yours be done. In that, we discover that happiness that is satisfying and fulfilling, it comes through Him, the giver of all good and perfect things. If we try to pursue happiness and achieve it on our own terms, by our own narcissistic ways, what we're going to discover is similar to to, uh, Narcissus. When we reach out to grab it, it just sort of slips between our hands. And that, by the way, is not even like a a religious way of thinking. There's a a therapist named Susan Beneva. I was reading an article from her on happiness. She may be a believer. She may not be. I kind of doubt she is based on some of the other things that she's written. But this is what she says about happiness. She says, like all feelings, happiness is transient. We cannot grab at it without it becoming more elusive or creating a fragile, false, and shallow kind of happiness that will not sustain us. This is a common knowledge and understanding, and yet our world continues to encourage us to think in terms of ourselves, prioritizing ourselves, prioritizing our happiness, satisfaction, contentment. doesn't matter if it's not virtuous. doesn't matter if it leads us down a path of unfaithfulness. As long as I'm happy, that's what matters, and it doesn't work. God invites us to something more. He invites us to get up, to stop staring at our own reflections in the water, and to start staring at His reflection in Christ. To stop grasping at the things we think are going to make us happy and yet leave us frustrated, and to start walking with Him and experience blessing as He intended it and promises it in His Word. It's an entirely different way of thinking that guides our decisions, our choices, our priorities, It just so happens to be that God created us this way, intends for us to be this way, and instilled in us this satisfaction waiting to be expressed and experienced, not in ourselves, but in Him. So here's our challenge for this week. Prioritize Him. It sounds simple, and and oddly enough, it sounds very familiar to the homework we've had in every other lesson this, this series, but that's because it's key and crucial. It's so easy to get caught up in ourselves in a narcissistic way. In fact, we're encouraged to think that way. And yet the challenge of the Christian life is to focus on Christ and to imitate Him and to experience the contentment and the blessing that comes from walking with Him. So this week, prioritize that voice. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your kindness. You have blessing in store for us. You have good that You intend for us. You don't desire us harm or ill will. You desire good for us, and you desire joy for us, as every good and loving Father does. But more importantly, you desire virtue and righteousness for us. You desire us to look like your Son, Jesus, because in that we are most satisfied and fulfilled, and you are most praised. And so we ask that you would work in us this week, that we would imitate the character of Christ, that we would serve, that we would sacrifice, that we would think more highly of others than ourselves, that we not think highly, more highly of ourselves than we ought, that we would be like Him in the way He gave Himself away. And in doing so, Lord, help us to taste the satisfaction that comes through walking with You and knowing You. Help us to taste the satisfaction and contentment of life everlasting that's found in Christ. And help us to look more like Him, that we might truly be blessed in this life and the next. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. As we move into a time of communion, uh, I want to continue thinking about this idea of blessing. 
Uh, blessing is, as we said, the experiencing a favorable circumstance, happiness. That comes from being in God's will, but that can't happen without Jesus. Sin is this barrier between us and the God who loves us and created us. And it creates this chasm between us. It's only through Jesus and through his sacrifice that sin can be atoned for, that can be dealt with, and that we can have this reunion with God, this creator who loves us and restores us. It's because of Jesus that we can experience blessing. And whether he realized it or not, the author of the psalm, way, way, way back, wrote these words that testify to this fact. Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. The key to satisfaction and contentment and peace and happiness is to be content and satisfied and at peace with the Lord, and that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's why every week we pause, we meet around this figurative table to break bread and to share a cup that reminds us of what he did. This little wafer will remind us of his body that was broken on our behalf, that bore our sin. This little cup contains juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed on our behalf. And as Isaiah says, washed us whiter than snow. This is a blessed time that we get to experience. And so as the emblems come around, I would encourage you to celebrate Jesus, to find rest in him, and to be happy that he is yours and you are his. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the joy of belonging to you, and we thank you for the work of Christ. Though our sins were like scarlet, you've washed us whiter than snow. And I pray that that truth would bury itself deep in our hearts and in the recesses of our minds, and that it would inform our identity and how we understand ourselves and how we understand you and how we understand the world around us, that it would transform us and renew our minds, that we might more faithfully embody Christ in his character that we might testify to your goodness, not just in our words, but in our deeds and in our relationships, and that you might be praised because of what you have done. Jesus, it's all because of you, and so we give you all the praise in this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.